Welcome to Unconditional Love with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is webinar episode 98, recorded May 14th, 2013, Love in the Ordinary. This audio podcast is sponsored by Liquid Networks, providing quality, affordable websites and website hosting. Get your free quote today by visiting www.liquidnetworksinc.com. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And I want to share a story from the scripture that I trust will bring the joy of the Lord to your heart and reveal just one more time that this is all, all about the love of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And that love is the love in the details. But anyway, let me get to the story. It is in John's Gospel, chapter 2, and it is the story of the very first miracle that Jesus worked. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples, there were uh, about six disciples at this point in the life of Jesus, Uh, Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but of course the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have been well drunk, then the inferior wine. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs or miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, there's the whole story. We don't usually read as much as that, but I want to read the story. People often talk in passing of the the miracle of the turning of water into wine, yet amazingly few people have actually read the story. As we saw, it's very early in the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, the very first miracle. So after this, there come all the miracles of the Gospels, but this was the first one. Just a few weeks prior to this, Jesus had left the Galilee, Nazareth in the Galilee, and had gone down the river Jordan to the south, and there had been baptized by John. 
And from there, he had gone six weeks into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And coming out of the wilderness triumphant and filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins the process of, shall I say, collecting disciples. The, the first ones, John and Andrew, and then he goes on from there. You remember Philip, and there was Nathaniel. And, and as he gradually begins to move back north toward home and the Galilee, that northern part around the Lake of Galilee where he lived, um, they come toward Cana. It was en route. That was the journey they were taking. Um, Cana. I'm sure those of you that have been to Israel have been to Cana. Uh, I have been there and have had some interesting experiences. Uh, it, it's nestled in the hills. It's a crossroads in the middle of nowhere, a little mountain village. And it, it, I say the road, Jesus is going north and here's Cana. And there's a wedding in progress. And it would appear that whoever was getting married, and we don't know to this day the, the name of the couple, but whoever it was seems to be a relative of Jesus, or at least the family. Um, just one or two things. I mean, number one, he was invited. And at this point in time, he was the unknown carpenter of Galilee who had begun what was to be everything we know of him within the next three years. But at this point, no one knew him except that little tiny group of disciples. If he was invited, they had to know him. And, and Cana was not next door to Nazareth, especially in those days. Uh, you would not just pop into Cana. If they knew him and invited him, the strong suggestion would be he was a relative and it was the thing to invite such relatives to the wedding. But on top of that, Mary, the, the virgin mother of Jesus, would appear to be in charge of the catering. She, it, she certainly looks as if she was in charge of the kitchen because she orders the servants to listen to what Jesus says and they obey her. So it would appear that here is a family gathering that included the entire village of Cana around this couple who are being married. Um, a, a Hebrew wedding. It's quite an affair. Um, it lasted a week, and, and during the week, various levels of festivity and feasting, and it was a grand holiday for the entire village and all of the relatives. The bride and the groom were king and queen of the village for a week. Into those festivities comes Jesus. Now, I, I find this story one of the most fascinating in terms of uh, giving us a window into who Jesus really is, as opposed to what sometimes we've been hoodwinked into thinking he is. I mean, this is a party. 
it, it was a Hebrew party and therefore would be interlaced with the realization of the covenant of God and this wedding being a, a celebration and a little shadow of that covenant with God. Yes, it had those definite overtones, but it was a party. I mean, I understand this. They were plenty to eat. They were drinking the wine. They were dancing in the streets in those wild, beautifully wild Hebrew dances as they whirl around and fling themselves in the air. Yeah, it was a party. Make no mistake about it. So surely, according to much that I've been taught by religion and certainly by the pictures that Jesus is portrayed as, he would have refused to go to such a worldly place as a party. But no, he totally embraces the invitation and he goes and he takes his six new disciples with him. And when he's there, there's no intimation that he's awkward, a sort of wallflower at, at, at the, the festivities. He's, he, he's, he's there and part of it. There's no suggestion that he stands there with a holier-than-thou look on his face to make sure everybody understands that he disapproves. In fact, in the next two years from this point, we're going to find him having parties and going to special dinners with tax collectors that were the lowest of the low in terms of morals and standing in society and always tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus never, never gives any sense of condemnation. Rather, they flock to him. They want to be with him. Just, just a little window into who Jesus really is. And here he is then, in a Hebrew wedding, and in the middle of the laughter and the feasting, with the music that is going, and yes, the dancing, all entwined, I say, with a great realization that these people had of the covenant God, that they were wondrously married to him, and all that he had done. They were, they were very aware of that, and their celebration was so entwined with that, it would be hard to separate it out. Everything that was done from the eating, the drinking, the dancing, the merrymaking, the band, it was all aware of the presence of God, and it was done in some sort of a way unto him. That was the, the covenant people. But still, I mean, this Jesus, the one that you believe in, could you imagine, because until you have in your high and holy imagination been to that party, uh, you've not read it yet. Uh, so so have, you, have you been to that party? And did you feel Jesus, a laughing Jesus? 
a smile and rippling laughter as he grabs your hand and whirls you around in a Hebrew dance. Is that your Jesus? As he is drawing you in to celebrate this couple, this unknown couple, the joy of their wedding. Just just a little window into who Jesus really is. Let, let me quick to say, if I haven't said it already, that this was not a party as some might think of it today. It was not a party that was to numb the senses, numb the pain of an empty soul. Uh, there are multitude of parties today that have no other reason for existence except to numb a person so they can't feel the anguish of being alive. No, no. Um, th this party and the fact they invited Jesus, if you can stand back far enough now and look at it, it, it was a party that in its essence, where it was done unto their covenant God. It was a welcoming of divine joy into their celebration. It was welcoming the presence of God into their marriage. And everything else that is going on was simply because that's how the Hebrews understood God that they'd never been baptized into the vinegar of the religion of the Western world that sees God as the most miserable creature in existence. No, they, they saw, you read it, Deuteronomy, good grief. Whenever they got together, this is what they did. They, they laughed and they danced and they sang and they feasted unto their God. And they knew that he joined in with them. And, and so, in a very real sense, what they were doing here at the wedding, which was a covenant with a meal that followed, lasting a week, was a covenant meal. It was a celebration. I don't know if, if I've still got all my audience at this point. The fact is... Um, it was very right, very expected, if you know the God of the Old Testament. When that God of the Old Testament became flesh and lived among us, this is exactly where I'd expect him to be. And where else would he be? If he is God with us, then I would expect him to be with us in every detail of our life. If he isn't, then he isn't really with us. He's sort of over there, vaguely alongside of us, frowning at what we do on a daily basis. Do, do you understand? At the heart of God... And when that God became flesh and in our humanness said, this is what I'm like, I do not find a solemn, unsmiling, intensely serious, burdened with a dark cloud of 
infinite responsibility. That, that's, you don't find that in the Gospels. And for some who are being shocked by that, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I would only have to say read through the Gospels and discover this Jesus. Quite, quite the reverse. That's why the temple couldn't stand him. That's why the representatives of religion, the Pharisees, were horrified by him. I mean, they, they had their little meetings and said, this man, this man he, he eats, he eats with sinners. Have you noticed every time he told a story, he interjected a feast of some sort? This is not an aside. See, religion does not deal with where we live. Religion sees God as remote, disinterested, peering down from a vast distance. And the only thing that God is concerned with is big words like salvation. But of course, salvation always connected with heaven or hell, which means we've skipped over our entire life. Apparently, God is not interested in my life. He's not interested in my wedding. He's not interested in where we go to shop. He's not interested in whether I have a job or not. It's all about a salvation that begins after you're dead. So God talks about heaven and hell and damnation and judgment. And then he turns up dancing at a wedding, spinning around and grabbing your hand and toasting the bride and bridegroom. No, you see, our God loves us. Our God Revealed in Jesus. Revealed now as Abba, Daddy, loves us. And his love infuses our whole life. There is not a thing that you do. There's not a thing that is important to you. But the the love of God is right there. Jesus took on our humanity. He is one of us. Do do you realize that they recorded the first step that Jesus took? First time Jesus got off from crawling and began the, the first stumbling little step that he took, it was recorded by Mary and Joseph and celebrated by family. The first tooth that when God became flesh, he had his first tooth and it was recorded his first day at school. You ever thought Jesus had birthdays? Jesus was in whatever sport they played. And then vacation days of the feasts in Jerusalem graduation from the synagogue school, the daily grind of finding the food to eat, going to the well to draw the water, where we buy clothes, work in the carpenter's shop. And by this time, 
it would seem, standing at the grave of his supposed father, stepfather, Joseph. Oh, yeah. He is one of us. And everything that Jesus experienced was experienced by the Father and by the Spirit. Life as a human is in the experience recorded history of God. I think that's very important. That's our God. And in the middle of all of that, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she comes and it's very obvious that she's anxious. She's anxious. She, she has, uh, the, the word used here is concern. Oh, we know what concern is. And she would not have been thus concerned, which is a certain face of anxiety, unless she had something to do with this. That's why I say she seemed to be in charge of catering. They've run out of wine. Now, I suppose that's bad enough in any um, wedding feast. And remember, the, these Hebrew weddings went on for a week. And if my uh, suppositions are correct, this would be about Wednesday of the week. That's a, just a, an aside, but they've run. Now, at a Hebrew wedding, wine had a very special meaning. It, it was looked upon. Now, this isn't in the Bible. This was really, let, let me say really, this was the superstitious way that people looked at weddings up there in the hills. Um, but we can't understand this wedding without understanding that. The, to them, the wine was the sort of seal of covenant joy. And that really was true. That is true in terms of throughout the scripture, wedding, covenants, that, that would be true. They, they pushed that a bit, though, in their superstition. They, they saw the, the wine was the blessing upon a marriage. So to run out of wine, and this is where the real superstition kicked in, if you ran out of wine at a wedding, then there was a cloud, a black cloud seen to be hanging over the marriage. It, it meant shame, on the couple and on their family and whoever it was that was supposed to have had the wine there. Or, or to put it really in the language of bad luck, you see, it, it, if you ran out of wine, that's an omen. That's an, a terrible thing has happened. They ran out of wine. That, that, that's a dark omen. That's bad luck on their marriage. That's a cloud over them. Nothing's going to go right in this marriage. Announce in the middle of the week that they've run out of wine and everybody begins to slink away. They don't want anything to do with such an omen. Bad luck. They're going to talk about that. It will be the gossip of the village probably for years to come when they point at that couple 10 years from now and say, remember, they ran out of wine. That was all superstition, but it plays into the story. 
And so here comes Mary with this terrible news that they've run out of wine. Is that that look on her face? You know how it is. Look, you just read the concern. She's not coming to just make a report. She's coming with, with urgent concern, anxiety to the only other person at the feast that, that's close enough she can share it with. I mean, this is urgent. This is crisis. This is anxiety to the max. What are we going to do? See, at this point, no one knew. The master of ceremonies didn't know. Certainly the bride and groom didn't know. Maybe the kitchen staff is beginning to know. Mary's urgent exit to the kitchen would be interpreted as they're going to open another barrel of wine. And so she turns to Jesus, her son. She's been with him now for about 30 years, living in the same house. And she knew that he lived with a unique insight into the wisdom of the God he called Daddy. And then he said to her, verse 4, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First of all, let me get this word woman out of the way. It does not mean or anything to do with what it might sound like if we addressed a person today as woman. Uh, the term to the Hebrew people meant honor. Uh, it's a word uh, of great honor, of great respect. Maybe today we would say, dear lady, uh, it, it, would, it would only be love and respect and honor to say this. And so he, he is addressing her gently. He's addressing her with ultimate respect. But then he said, and this is a very difficult phrase to put into plain English. What does your concern have to do with me? Maybe we could say, Jesus said, we're not on the same page. That is, the, the drama that this running out of wine is creating, the anxiety that is building up around it, um, no, that, that we're not on the same page. I, I, I cannot join you in your concern. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. I, I, I cannot join you. We're not together on that. We're not on the same page. Um, then what page are you on, Jesus? <laughs> I mean, we've run out of wine. Your mother seems to be in charge of that. What page are you on? Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Or the time for me to act is not yet. See, there are two schedules running here. One is Mary's schedule. And that schedule right now is in a state of rising anxiety. is rising concern. Um, there, there's, 
Something has got to be done. And it's got to be done because we've run out of wine. On the other side, Jesus is saying, I'm not on that page. I'm not driven by those concerns. I'm not driven by that anxiety. I have a schedule, my time. And as his life unfolds, when he uses that phrase again, it is his father's schedule. He said, I I am not driven by the emergency. I only am driven by what my father is about and when he's about it. And so Jesus' response is not saying to Mary, what on earth shall we do? But within his spirit, he is saying, Father, what are you doing? What shall we do? Do you understand? Um, It's the same reason that when the disciples in a couple of years would wake Jesus in the middle of that storm uh, on the lake when the boat was sinking, Jesus asleep and in panic and anxiety, the disciples wake him and says, don't you care? And the response of Jesus said, why are you afraid? which really, however many times I've spoken about it, they still haunt me. Why are you afraid? That, that is, you are being controlled and driven by the emergency. He was not controlled by any emergency. He was not even controlled by a pressing, urgent need. He was controlled by his father and the love of his father. And what is the love of the father doing in this particular moment. He doesn't respond to fear. He doesn't respond simply because it's a crisis. His response is to the Father. His response is going to be a manifestation of divine love, not just fixing a a crisis. And she understood. She appears to understand perfectly because she immediately relaxes. But she doesn't give up on expecting him to do whatever he's going to do in his time, which will be the Father's time, in his way, which will be the Father's way. I hope that makes sense to you. I say she understood because she immediately, without any concern or anxiety, I could almost feel the the load dropping off her shoulders. She turns to the servants and basically told them he's in charge of the kitchen now. Or the way she put it is whatever he says to you, do it. I like that expression, whatever, (laughs) whatever. It it covers every possibility, every eventuality. It sounds a little strange. Um, Whatever. Look, guys, I have no idea what he's going to tell you, but whatever it is, however weird, however strange, do it. I'm out of here. He's in charge of the kitchen. Expect the unexpected. Jesus is not the sort of divine fix-it. He's not the magician who just 
does an abracadabra and produces wine. I say it again, all he does is to reveal the Father's love. If you can get a hold of that, it changes our praying, it changes our outlook on life. In fact, I believe this is right in the prayer that he taught us to pray. It's right there, because the disciples said, when they saw him praying, they said, you teach us to pray, and he gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer. Think about it very quickly. <laughs> Our Father, and remember that word is Abba, means Daddy, Papa. Our Daddy, you who are in heaven, that takes us immediately above. It transcends earth, and earth is full of crisis and anxiety and trouble and concern. Well, our Father in heaven, we've moved above. We have stepped into another dimension. Remember, if he's our daddy in heaven, then we are heavenly beings too. If fathers and sons and daughters, you are in the same place. Hallowed be your name, which means Bottom line, let let the people see who you are. Let your name, who you really are, be seen. Let your kingdom come. Let, let, let your rule and reign of love, kindness, gentleness be seen here, now. And let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, let heaven intersect with earth at this point. Let heaven overlap. Let earth be filled with heaven right now. And right after that, he said, give us this day our daily bread, which includes then every necessity of life. It is to be under that umbrella of the kingdom of God and the this moment being the intersection of heaven and earth. Actually, though, this makes me nervous. When I'm in a crisis, I want God to get worried. I want God to get as concerned as I am. I want God to call emergency meetings in the Trinity. I mean, this, I feel like saying, no, don't, my time has come. That time we did something. But no, Jesus is not driven by anxiety. He's driven by love, love's moment, love's time. And let, let I gotta say, what might Jesus have? You you don't read these scriptures without asking what he might have done, or maybe what religion would wish he had done. You know, he could have stopped the feast. Really, think about this. I've asked you, go, go to the feast in your high and holy imagination. You're there, I mean, and be there. You're in the kitchen now. And Mary has grabbed Jesus by the arm and walked him into the kitchen and she's told him. And what might Jesus have done, especially if we think of him as some people do, he could have stopped the feast. Just go out there, stop it, tell them. You, you've already drunk the place dry, for goodness sake, it's enough. 
Stop this feast and go home. He could have made the announcement that there's no wine, which of course would have brought shame upon everybody there. He could have called a prayer meeting and told them to get serious with God and stop this frivolity. Or, and maybe this is very interesting, he, he could have stopped the feast and called everybody to gather round and watch him turn water into wine so that they would have faith. You realize this miracle was done in absolute secret in the kitchen. Nobody out there in the feast knew what was happening because they didn't even know they'd run out of wine. The only people that if you want to use the word saw it, well, the, the servants in the kitchen saw it. And I suppose they were the ones who ultimately spilled the beans and told everybody. But the thing was done in secret, which I see again, not only this Jesus who is so utterly one with us, he would not have done option one or option two, but he doesn't do this in public and he doesn't let anybody know why because he doesn't want the shame of having run out of wine in the first place to even be known by the couple, let alone everybody else. Love covers a multitude of things, you know. He kept the secret. No one, no one knew of the crisis. Here he is in the kitchen. The servants are standing there kind of looking awkward. They've suddenly got a new boss in the kitchen, out there in the courtyard, out on the street. The music is playing and there's the party chatter and there's the laughter. You can hear someone is congratulating the couple and the kids. I mean, everybody's out of school and the kids are playing and laughing in the streets. We're standing here at the very last minute with no other resources. We've run out of wine and the servants are looking at Jesus. And he says, fill the water pots with water and fill them to the top. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, not, not only that he said fill them with water, I mean... <laughs> That's very interesting. But to fill the water pots, the pots were used for water. Why didn't he say fill the wine barrels? Could it be that if there, you know, in the wine barrel, there might have been some wine, just, I mean, a dribble of wine left in the bottom and then people would say he didn't turn water to wine. He just filled it with water and all the water got colored by what was in there. No, he is going to make sure whenever this does come out, the whole wonder is understood. Nor does he say to them, fill the water pots. Because they might have, you know, left uh, maybe six inches or a foot. Uh, they might have half filled them. And then people would say, well, he just filled the rest with some wine. No, he said, fill it to the top 
with water, so there's no possibility of anyone thinking this is a sleight of hand. Six water pots, 180 gallons of the best wine that that village had ever tasted. 180 gallons, that's going to be enough for the whole village and all the relatives right to the end of the feast. But all he's done at this point is fill the water pots to the top. And then he says, now ladle it out. You know, you put the big ladle in and put it into the wine glass. I'd love to see the face of that servant as he goes, he's looking at Jesus, looking at water pots that are full of water. And he puts in the ladle, and as he pours it into the glass, it is wine, rich red wine. They're looking at each other. This is crazy. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to do. Would you be that servant? Go on, be that servant. Carry. You're looking at the wine as you carry it. You know that's water. You know it's water, but it's, it's wine. Dazed, he hands it to the master of ceremonies. It's the custom. He's got to taste the wine. It's obviously, as far as he's concerned, it's a new barrel. We've got to taste it. And the servant is looking at that master of ceremonies as he tastes the wine and, and passes it under his nose. And, and the look on his face and the growing smile of wonder. And he turns to the bride and the groom and he congratulates them. He congratulates the family. He said, this is some wedding. He said, normally you keep the... The wine, the wine for the last three days is usually the old stuff. He got it on the cheap, bought it at a sale because everybody's, uh, they've lost a real sense of taste for the good stuff. But he said, you, whoa, you are so people. You've kept the best wine I've ever tasted to the last. Huh. Now, remember the couple the bride and groom, the ones we don't even know their names. They didn't know there'd been a crisis, so they didn't know there'd been a miracle. So think about it. For this miracle to take place, they didn't ask Jesus to do anything. And as far as that goes, they didn't have any faith. <laughs> they didn't even see the need for faith in terms of their feast. They didn't have to agonize and try and believe God that there'll be enough. No, they're just having a jolly old time. Nor did they pay Jesus to get 180 gallons of wine. Nor um, did they give something in exchange for his services because they didn't know anything about it until probably days later, maybe weeks later, when one of the servants sneaked out what really happened. And while all this was going on, the party just goes on as if nothing has happened. Because as far as they're concerned, nothing has happened. And there's Jesus in the kitchen, beaming at the delight 
of the guests and says the disciple John who wrote this, who was there, he said this was his first miracle and he revealed his glory. The glory, that's the outradiance of who he really is. He doesn't do that with the lecture. Doesn't give them a course of theology to say that the God he reveals is kind and gentle and spontaneous love. No, he doesn't do any lecturing. He just does something. He does it. And it could not be further from what we expected. Nor could it be more at the most intimate moment in a family life. Nor could it be more trivial. There's a lot, lot of things you could say about this. That, that's the last place I would expect God to say, now I'm going to show you what I'm like. But that's where he chose to do it. There was no good reason Jesus didn't have to do it. I mean, if the couple had overlooked ordering a couple or three extra barrels of wine, well, that's their problem. And anyway, the shame and bad luck, it's all silly superstition. It's time these people grew up and understand that God's bigger than that. No, Jesus doesn't make any comment upon their silly superstitions doesn't make any comment about anything. He just did a spontaneous, unnecessary act of kindness and love and didn't tell anybody about it and said, John, that revealed who God really is, what he's really like. If you had been that couple, when they did finally discover what had happened, I think you would be as confused as I would be. Confused in absolute wonder. I mean, this is the ultimate wow. Why on earth would he do that for us? I mean, we are the most insignificant couple of the hayseed pe pe peasants. No, but no, I mean, they, they will live and die and the greatest miracle performed in their house and still today we don't know who they were. Just people. Why would he do that? And maybe the human brain can never give an answer to that because that's the love of God. And when we say God is love, we stop far short of that. Far short. God is love is up here somewhere dealing with salvation and heaven and hell. Well, the love of God is all the way down here at a wedding feast turning 180 gallons of water into wine. Just because he loved an anonymous, insignificant couple that were to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit mightily significant. Here, is God's love providing in emergency. And it was an emergency because under normal circumstances, 
one goes to work to earn the money, to sit down and plan the wedding and make out a list of what is needed and go get it with the money that you earn. That's normal. But a mistake had been made. Silly little mistake. Somewhere in all of that, silly little overlook. And they didn't order enough. So they run out. Is that enough for God to get involved? I mean, surely, just say, well, you, you were stupid. You must have been dreaming. No. This daddy God, who revealed himself perfectly in God the Son, Lord Jesus Christ, said, I am totally involved in this and I will work inside that mistake, that overlook to reveal my glory. And notice, and maybe I'm going a bit too far here, but he did it with no sweat, with such ease, you don't, I, I can't find out actually where the miracle happened. I, I'm sort of in on it after the fact. Look, I, I mean, when he healed the sick, not that there was any sweat or, or effort, but he did lay hands on. Sometimes he commanded them, get up and walk or whatever. And when it came to casting out of demons, it was with an angry command. He rebuked them. And I mean, you certainly knew about it. But in the kitchen here, he didn't say anything. You, you follow me? He didn't go over to the water pots and lay hands on them and command wine. To... No, the servants filled the water pots. The servants ladle it out. He, he, he spoke the... It was as if within him that inner knowing of the Father's kindness and love and this is the way and this is the timing and with complete trust in that inner knowing of the Father, it happens. Um, because the Father's love and kindness just is. And from within Jesus, the unspoken word, it is. And now act as if it is. It's interesting also that when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, it's quite similar, that we don't really know at the point where it happens. It's as if when it comes to these little details of life, it seems to be the, if I can use the word, easiest of all miracles. And I think it's interesting every time that anxiety 
over these details of food and drink and, and storms and Jesus' response to the persons there, if you go through the Gospels, he says, oh, you of little faith, as if he couldn't understand them, not trusting Daddy at a time like this. And so you have Matthew 6. He says, you're not a Gentile, that you're not a person outside of the covenant. Why are you anxious about what you shall eat and what you shall put on, what the future holds? Let me say this quickly, that this is in the Gospels. I don't know if you've ever understood this before, so hear me carefully. What we're reading now is in the Gospels. That Jesus in the Gospels is the one who didn't only come into our distresses and anxieties with the Father's peace and calmness and love, didn't only come into our sickness, into our demonized world. No, he went into our death. And in his death, he carried us and all our pain to death. And when he rose from the dead with a deathless life triumphing over death, we triumphed with him. And we are now in him and he, this Jesus I've been talking about for the last hour, this Jesus is in us. He is in us and as he said, he's in us through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is this Jesus now multiplied in believers in us. And therefore, as we today walk into life, this Jesus is ever with us and is doing his works now in and through us. So this isn't ancient history. This is actually a pointer to your life and my life to say, get used to having this person fill your life. Get used to this person sitting with you and in you as you do the budget, as you go to the pantry, as you go to the clothes closet, as you go to the grocery store. Get used to this God who is revealed in Jesus, who lives in you now through the Holy Spirit and become aware of him. That's the big, big word. Become aware of what he's doing because there's so much in your life that he has done and you haven't found out about it yet. He did it so quietly. Watch. <laughs> I, 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 if I had more time, I'd give a list of ways you could watch. But in the oddest places, you walk into a, a store and just for that day, they've halved their prices. Well, I wonder why. Who told them to do that? There was that thing hanging over your head and then mysteriously they cancelled it and said no. Do, do you realize 
that you live in the middle of the love of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father, and that middle is the Holy Spirit. That's where you live, and that's where your entire life is taking place. You ought to open your eyes to see what goes on in the kitchen life, you know, place of the ordinary, and to learn to trust him implicitly knowing that he cares for you. He looks after you in areas that as yet you're not even aware of, let alone the ones you are. Get used to his quiet love energy that is directed just for you and for your loved ones. And there won't be a show, and there won't be a public fanfare, and there won't be angels dancing on the kitchen table. But you'll look back and realize God was with us. He guided us. Talking to someone just the other day, and without going into any remoteness of the details, but there had been, in the middle of such a series of mistakes and overlooks, there had been the hand of God in, in nothing short of little miracles of what might have been but didn't ever come to pass. And yet the response of that person was complain, 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 and blame, and blame. And all the time Jesus was in the kitchen working his miracles, but they were so full of complaint and anger and blame-shifting I don't think they'll ever discover that he turned their water to wine. You know what I mean? It's our total life. That's, I suppose, what I'm trying to say. The entire human opera is the stage on which he reveals his glory. Every time, every place, every event, be at rest. For this Jesus lives in you and you live in him. Expect, be aware of this spontaneous love and kindness that bursts out in the oddest places. Or as the Proverbs say, in all your ways, in all the pathways of life, acknowledge him. Be aware. And so when, when the wine runs out, and when the normal flesh response is panic, he who now dwells in union with us, hear him say, I do not share your panic. We're not on the same page. Come over to my page where I'm asking Daddy God, what are you doing? What is your love, your kindness up to? What do we have to do, if anything? And you will see the glory of God. Amen. And now the blessing of this incredible God who is love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, His blessing fill your life that you may be the arena in which his glory is demonstrated. So I bless you. So it is. Amen.
Malcolm Smith's ministry is dedicated to guiding believers into the reality of experiencing daily fellowship with the Father. This has been another message by Malcolm Smith. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, including a full catalog, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org.